New Testament says that we as believers are to be ambassadors in this world. It's a figure that Paul uses here and one that Christ used in Sermon on the Mount. We are to be lights in the world. But if we are honest with ourselves, very often it seems that our batteries must need recharging because our lights don't shine too brightly. And it may be that the world around doesn't notice us too much because really we're not very different from them. We want to look at this passage this morning because Paul tells us one way in which our lives should be different and through that difference should have an impact upon the world around us. That difference is found in verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We as Christians are to be people who live without a spirit of complaining and griping. I can already see it in some of your faces. Some of you are saying, oh no, don't talk about that. And you're already griping. (laughs) And you probably respond that way, some of you, because you know how deeply ingrained This type of response is in all of us in some way or another. Paul, first of all, in verses 12 and 13, sets the background by addressing the basics, the foundation through which we can have any impact we have in the world. Namely, that we take our salvation seriously and put it into practice. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says we are to work out our salvation. He doesn't say we are to work for our salvation, because as he says in Romans 3, we are saved by grace apart from any works of the law. But we are to work out our salvation. We are to put it into practice. We take it seriously and make it have its effects in our lives. If we're honest with with ourselves, we recognize and admit that we don't always do that. We don't always take it so seriously. We don't always live as Christians, put our salvation into practice. So probably we should ask ourselves, why don't we do that? Well, the reasons are many. But Paul, by implication, refers to three of those reasons here in this passage. First of all, He implies in verse 12 that some of them may have been using as an excuse, I need somebody else to do it for me. I need somebody to work with me. So Paul says, work out your own salvation. Don't wait around for me to do it for you. Many people use an excuse, well, I need somebody to disciple me. I just need to wait until we get the right teacher in our class or in our church, who can speak in just the right way that I can really relate to it. Or I need them to organize something different for me. The regular traditional things don't seem to meet my needs. And so we want to push off responsibility away from ourselves onto others. Paul says here, work out your own salvation. You are to take responsibility for your problems. If you have a bad attitude, you're not to let it fester and grow, but you're to Work with it and deal with it and learn to draw upon God's resources and strength so that you can eliminate that. If you have a problem relating to somebody and have tensions in that relationship, you need to not just let it slide, but you need to work on it so that you work out your salvation 
Make it have its effects in that relationship. If you have a habit that seems to be repeated and enslave you, you need to not just let it go, but work at it, deal with it, and do something about it. Another reason, it's implied by the words, work out your own salvation. Another reason that some people don't do it is that they put the blame on God. They say, well, I just have to wait around for God to, to deal in my life. I have to make let Him change me. That sounds good, because the Scriptures do talk about waiting on the Lord. Not just waiting for Him to do something in me, but our waiting expectantly in hope, in anticipation of His work in our lives. When the Scripture speaks that, it doesn't imply that we're just to, to wait around, be able to say, well, I have a bad attitude, but I'll just persist in it until God does something about it. Paul says you are to work out your own salvation. You are to tackle those things and meet them head on. Another problem that he alludes to in this verse is one of motivation. Because oftentimes we are motivated because we just want to please men. We just want to look good to those who are observing us rather than living our lives to please God. So he says, don't obey just in my presence only. But even much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work within you. Even if I'm not looking, God is there. You may, you probably don't have the same problem that some in the early church do, but uh, you as a family may experience what many families do on Sunday morning. It's a rush, it's chaos, trying to get everybody fed and dressed and into the car on time and off to church. And for many, it becomes a yelling session. We're late because of you. No, we're late because you didn't have the breakfast on table on the table on time. And back and forth it goes. But as soon as the family walks in the uh, in, drives into the parking lot and they walk in the door, they wipe off the frown from their faces and they're all smiles and praise the Lord. Isn't it great to be together? Because they want to look good to people. Paul says, "Don't obey just when I'm looking." Because God is always looking. Don't obey just at certain times, such as when you're gathered together in Sunday morning. Some people think you have to be reverent when you come in the door, but then you can be irreverent when you go out the other door. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. This building is not the house of God. Our bodies are in the New Testament age. And therefore, God is always with us. As this verse alludes to, God Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you. We're to have a respect, a very healthy respect that it's God in whose presence we live life. We need to realize that all of our life is going to come before him one day and be made open and bare and shown to be what it really is. And because of that, we should live each minute of our life with fear and trembling. Now, the New Testament doesn't mean a servile fear, the fear of a of one who's afraid of punishment, because the teaching is very plain. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, as Paul says. God's not going to punish us. But what we fear is missing out on part of what God has for us. We fear the loss of the reward that we can have eternally. And we fear the spiritual benefit in the present that we can have by living for Him, by His power. I have a friend who told me that this type of thinking is a very strong motivation for him. And the times in his office when he's alone, he's tired, he wants to take a little break. 
It's very easy, he said, to indulge his mind in various ways. Just daydream. You know, you daydream and you're the hero in all the scenes. Make the winning touchdown run. Then you go out and you become a civic hero and save four children from uh, speeding cars all at one time. And everybody loves you. Or maybe you're the most beautiful person on the block in your daydreams. He said or he'd do that, or at other times he might just indulge his mind in self-pity or in lust or in materialism and thinking about all the things he had or would like to have. But it was this type of thought here that motivated him not to do that. Because he realized that every minute meant a potential for either gain or loss of reward. He realized that if he submitted himself to God at that point, dealt with the temptation, didn't give in, instead drew upon God's resources and lived that moment and worked in that moment, serving God, even though men weren't looking, he'd get a reward. If instead he indulged himself, even though no man would know, God would, and there'd be a loss of the potential reward and benefit he could have from God. And this is what Paul means when he says we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're to be sober about our lives, not treat them flippantly, because we do live before a mighty God. And Paul says here that we are to take initiative with our lives. We're to meet our problems head on and deal with them, not just let them slide. And yet, this dealing with them, this working out our salvation, is not mere self-effort. Because Paul says in verse 13, it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we don't have to fall into the, into the pattern of, I just can't help it, I don't have the willpower to, to keep trying with this particular problem I have. Because God supplies us with the will. We don't have to fall into the trap of thinking, well, I try and I try, but I just cannot conquer this sin. And I just have to expect it to stay there. Because we realize that God gives us the power. Therefore, we can attack our problems, but do so with a confidence that God's at work within us, giving us all that we need. There are two basic aberrations for the, in approaching the Christian life. Some people err on the one side by thinking that the Christian life is basically self-effort. Here are a list of 20 rules that you do. If you do this and this and this and this, then you'll have a successful Christian life. And they fail to realize that we need to depend upon God's power and live by faith. But there are others who err in the other direction, and their basic attitude is, well, I'll just wait around for God to do something, and I'll just continue my life as it naturally works out according to my various impulses, I just have to wait for God to change me, wait for Him to work in my life. The Christian life, as we see in this passage, is to be one in which we actively attack our problems, but do so in dependence upon God. And this balance of our responsibility and yet our dependence upon God has best been illustrated to me by a, a story that a friend of mine told me. This friend was teaching his young daughter truths from the Bible, and one night they were going over the story of David and Goliath. And little Susan, about this tall, was about six or eight years old. And her father, Bruce, gave her a, uh, a sock, and that was her sling, and a ping pong ball. And she was to 
sling it around her head and let go of one half of the sock and the ping pong ball would fly off and hit him. So he told her that she needed to throw it at him and she needed to trust in the Lord to, to conquer him. So he got across the living room and started coming at her. I am Goliath. I am going to kill you. And she gets the ping pong ball, slings it around her head and hits him right square in the middle of the body. And on he comes. She says, but daddy, that's not fair. I hit you and you're supposed to fall down. He said, well, Susan, mere human weapons aren't going to kill me. You have to put your trust in the Lord to have victory over me. So she says, okay, let's do it again. <laughs> so across the room, he comes. I am Goliath and I will kill you. And again, she stands there. This time she says, I put my trust in the Lord. The battle is the Lord's and holding her sling at the same time. And on he comes. And she says, but daddy, I trusted the Lord. And he says, well, it's no good to trust the Lord and then not throw the sling. You've got to do both things. You've got to throw the rock at me and put your trust in the Lord to use that action to, to defeat me. And what a, a wonderful illustration of the balance of the Christian life. We trust in the Lord, as David said in, in 1 Samuel 16, and yet the, and the battle is the Lord's, and yet we have to throw the stones. And this is what Paul is saying here. So this is the general foundation of our living the Christian life. We have to work out our salvation. We have to attack our problems, but we do so in dependence upon God. And as we do, then the uh, groundwork is laid for our impact upon the world. And now in verse 14, Paul comes to the particulars. Verses 14 to 16, let's read those verses. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have caused a glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Since we're to do all things without grumbling and disputing, that means basically that we're not to be complainers. We're not to gripe. Disputing means you're arguing and questioning everything. Now, we can question things, but not in a spirit of attacking, not in a spirit of, you better change because I know what's right. Paul says that we as Christians are to do all things without this argumentative, complaining, griping spirit. And yet the world around us gripes at everything, it seems like. And sometimes we do. On the job, we gripe when people don't treat us the right way. Sometimes as Christians, we gripe at work because we can't cheat like other people. God won't let us. And that's no fair because they're getting ahead cheating. Members, at one time in college, I was griping because as a Christian, I had to study the Bible. All the other people got to just study their textbooks all the time and had more time to make better grades than me. We gripe at church when things don't go the, the way we want them to go. The song leader picks out the wrong song, one that's not our favorite. Or the teacher doesn't teach things the right way. Or those in leadership don't organize things the way we want them to. We gripe at home when children, when their parents make them eat spinach and go to bed on time and do your homework and all those horrible things. The parents gripe and complain and the children don't do all those horrible things. Husbands and wives gripe and complain at one another when they think that the other is not serving them adequately and doing the things they want. And probably the worst type of griping 
is when we gripe at other people who gripe. And we think, well, if they just wouldn't gripe so much that I, I wouldn't be bothered by all their hassles. You don't have to be told, I'm sure. The world is full of people who gripe and complain. But Paul is saying here that we as Christians should put all that away. We should be different. To do so, I think it will be helpful for us for a minute to think about what causes that kind of griping and complaining. Well, the answer is really quite simple. The thing that causes us, causes it, is our selfishness. If I want the boss to be sweet to me, and he's curt at work one day, sharp, then I gripe and complain, because it's not fair, I should be treated better. If I find that my money uh, runs out before the month runs out, then I gripe and complain about, about it. It's not fair, I can't get what I want. Too many taxes, too much inflation, and my boss doesn't pay me enough. And other people are getting paid more than me, and they don't deserve it. When we find that our roommate or spouse doesn't do the household chores in the way that we want them done and think they should be done, we gripe and complain there. We gripe and complain basically because we don't get our way. In other words, basically because we're selfish. Sometimes we try to fool ourselves and say, well, they really should pick up their clothes. And yet the reason we complain is not because we're so concerned that they learn orderliness and neatness, but because it bothers us and we have to do it. Well, how do we get beyond this kind of response to life? Do we do it by burying our heads in the sand and pretending like circumstances are always what we want them to be? Well, of course not. The only way we can give up a complaining spirit is to adopt a different mindset, a different approach to life. As long as I think that the basic purpose in life is my being happy and comfortable and having things work out the way I want and having people do things the way I want them to, then I'm going to be a complainer, and a very regular one. But if I see myself as a Christian, as one who is bought with a price, I don't belong to myself. But my job in this world is to glorify God, not myself. Then I don't have to be all bent out of shape when things don't go my way. Because I'm not really expecting that things are going to be easy for me. If you're on a football team and you go out and play football, you don't get all bent out of shape if you get bruised up because you expect it in that kind of situation. You're not there to keep from getting bruised up. If you walk down the sidewalk and you get all bruised up, then maybe you don't expect that and you get bent out of shape. But we have to change our expectations to fit our role in life. Because we're here to serve God, to glorify Him. And as we do so, Paul says in verse 15, the end result will be that we will prove to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you will appear as lights in the world. And in saying that we are blameless and innocent, Paul is apparently implying that somebody wants to point the finger of blame at us. That somebody, I think you will agree, is a non-Christian world around us. They don't want to have to believe the gospel. They don't want to have to believe that they cannot save themselves. The unregenerate man is, is offended by the gospel. He doesn't want to 
acknowledge that his good deeds cannot outweigh his bad deeds, no, no matter how much money he gives to charity or how many civic deeds he does. He does not want to acknowledge that God has the right to be Lord in his life and he cannot be master of his own faith. And so if he can look at us and say, that person's a Christian and he or she is just as much of a complainer as anybody else in this world, then I can say, I don't have to believe Christianity because it obviously doesn't work in that person's life. But if on the other hand, we are people who are transformed and we show by our lives that we are living for God's glory. We don't, we don't gripe when motorists pull in front of us in the street. We don't complain when we have to stand in long lines at the grocery store. We don't get upset when things don't go our way. Then people are going to take notice. We're going to stand out like a sore thumb. Not just stand out, but we'll be lights in the world. We'll be vehicles of the revelation of God's truth to those around us. Because we will be different. Paul says, as we do this, in verse 16, as we do this, we'll be holding fast the word of life. Faithfulness to the word of God does not mean simply that we believe the right doctrines. Holding fast the word of life means also that we take it seriously and we put our salvation into practice. It means that we become the people who give up complaining, grumbling, and disputing. And that's what Paul's envisioning here. He says that it's only when you hold fast the word of life and you become transformed in your response to frustrating circumstances, only then will I really have cause to glory in the day of Christ. Paul's saying, I don't want to get there and say, God, here are the people who, by your grace and the opportunities you gave me, I was able to lead to Christ, period. I want to get there and say, here are the people who I led to Christ and then grew up to maturity. Here are the people who, whose lives show a lack of complaining spirit. They are transformed and, and in this way are faithful to the word. Paul says, only then will I be satisfied. Without, without that, I'll consider my ministry to be a failure. Well, to give up complaining, I'm sure you realize, as I do, that it will take a very deep motivation, a very strong one. Because we all want to get our way. We don't like to give that up. And therefore, Paul gives us an example in verses 17 and 18 from his own life. He's saying, not in a boastful way, but in a way of trying to be helpful, here I am. An example of one who has given up trying to live for his own comfort. He says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. He uses the terminology of sacrifices in the ancient world. The ancient world had many different types of sacrifices. The meat sacrifices of bulls and goats and birds, lambs, the grain sacrifices, and then also the uh, wine sacrifices. And generally, a cup of wine, a drink offering, would be a cup of wine that would be poured on top of a, of a meat offering, a sacrifice. I guess we would think of it kind of like a minute marinade or something. And as such, the meat was the main part of the sacrifice, not the wine. The wine was there just to enhance the flavor of it for the deity to whom the sacrifice was being given. 
Paul says, even if I am just a mere wine offering on your faith, you're the one whose lives are enhanced. You're the one who grow and become a living sacrifice to God. Even if my life is expended for that ministry, I rejoice and I give thanks. And to, the, and to Paul, these were not empty words, not a mere figure of speech, because he was writing them from prison. And he says in chapter 1, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. They might take my life here. He's saying, even if my life is given up for this ministry, I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to gripe at God. I'm going to rejoice that I can be of, of service to Him. Paul says, I'm not going to gripe. Why can't I take a wife with me in the ministry like the other apostles? Why can't I have a nice, comfortable pastorate as a membership in the country club connected with it in a nice, large parsonage? Why do I have to be in prison all the time? Why can't I be taken out to dinner to nice places like some others? He doesn't complain over his circumstances. Instead, he says, I rejoice, even if the circumstances are so bad that it means the termination of my life. But I do so, he says, because I see my life as a service to God. And I want you to rejoice with me. So he says in verse 18, You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. He's telling them to rejoice too because he is very dear to them. They might lose him if he dies. Now imagine if all the leaders at Cole Community Church here were thrown into Boise jail tomorrow and killed for the faith. Some of you, I'm sure, would secretly rejoice, get rid of us, but probably most of you would grieve over the personal loss. The same thing was happening would happen with the Philippians. They would grieve over the loss of one like Paul, whom they dearly loved. And he says, I want you to rejoice with me, even if that happens. Because by rejoicing with me, your attitudes are going to have to be changed. Because if you rejoice that I am killed for the faith, then you have to adopt the same mindset. You have to say, yes, it's right to have a different approach to life. So that you're living not for your own comfort and luxury and ease, but you're living for the service of God. And it's as we adopt that mindset, then we will be lights in the midst of this world. And we will have an impact upon those around us. Now as we become lights and have an impact, most people find a couple of basic needs. One, they find they need to figure out what to say once they have an opportunity and they have a credibility of witness because of their life. Secondly, they need to have some boldness. They need to have the courage to actually say something to somebody about their eternal destiny. And these two things don't always come easy. So to help meet these needs and serve you better, the church has organized an evangelism class that will start October 3rd. John Barnes will be teaching. And if you feel a need in these areas, we would encourage you to to think about participating so that you might learn how to share your faith, how to overcome the fear, the initial fears of, of uh, what are people going to think, why I look like a religious fanatic, uh, an oddball. Uh, so some of you will be contacted about this evangelism class and some others of you might want to call in the church office and find out about it. That will be October 3rd, uh, starting October 3rd. But Paul's envisioning here that we are people whose lives are transformed. And through that transformation, 
we can be be lights in the world because we are different. Now let's pray together for a few minutes. I'm going to ask you to pray not simply, uh, I'm not going to simply do the praying for you today, but I want you to do the praying, and I'm going to suggest some things for you to pray about. And we'll thank God for some of the truths that we've uh, studied this morning and some of the, ask Him to help us in some of the areas of need that they've uh, that have surfaced because of. So let's all bow together and pray, and I'll suggest a few topics for you along the way, then close this up at the end, and then uh, Howie will come to lead us in a closing song.